All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 45, and I have Jason Lindgren back. We are going to be talking about full spectrum programming. We're all subject to it. Uh, the argument could be made that our entire culture is basically built on the back of the full spectrum programming through media, movies, music, culture, all the things we're going to talk about here. And I would ask um, to all the people listening are you free? Are you a free person? And I'm not really asking that rhetorically or asking for an answer, but suggesting maybe you should think about what goes on in a day in your life and decide whether you are truly living in a free country and a free person. And I'm not going to add anything more than that. But you need to take into account the way we live at this point in time where we are barraged with data at a clip that is unprecedented. Um, this is much of the reason why I often refer to the modern times with so many of us waking up as kind of a quickening. And while I'm not trying to talk about space-time or some other intricate physics idea, what I'm trying to point out when I say the quickening is imagine a person born in 1960 when they were young, five, six, seven years old. How much data came to them in a day now look at the same child in the modern era, even push it up to you know, young teens, 13, 14. These children today are taking in probably in a few minutes more data than um, a child back in the day took. I don't even know. I would have to guess. Hours, you know, a day, I don't know. But it's clearly, clearly an accelerated clip, and it demonstrates the idea of the quickening <clears throat> the effects that this has on a society, you know, anyone could go at it and begin to try to logically deduce what this means. But at the base of what it means is we're taking in information. Every bit of information we take in has an effect on our existence. Now consider that if the majority of the information sources that we have access to now have been compromised and the average person may roll their eyes and think that that's not a possible thing. But I'll give you an example. In the same way, we did not go to the moon, and that is provable. Um, you want to argue about it, go somewhere else. You just simply have not looked. Um, you're choosing to believe that we went to the moon. There is no portion of that story that cannot be ripped apart. Take the current Mars missions. It's the same thing. No one is going to Mars. In the same way, nobody went to the moon. But look at the full-spectrum idea of the trips we're about to take to Mars. It's in TV comedies. It's in special National Geographic things. It's in science shows. It's in your newspaper, your magazines. It's everywhere. This idea that, well, we've already been to the moon. Now we're going to Mars. And I'm here to tell you it's a construct. There is no portion of the idea that we are going to Mars that holds water. In the same way that the idea that we went to the moon holds water. And this is kind of maybe an encapsulated example of what we're going to be talking about when we're talking about full-spectrum program. And I would suggest that our entire culture in the United States, what culture we have, you know, we're not one of these nations that has hundreds and hundreds of years of culture. Um, we have far less. But I would suggest that the culture that we have at this point was built on the back of full-spectrum media programming. Even the idea of how a man and a woman should get married, what we, the licensing we need, how that 
relationship should look in the household, all of it. And when you begin to logically think about what we're talking about here, I don't know, maybe it will do some good for some people. Maybe some people won't find value. I don't know. But I do know this. I'm a human being. I make mistakes like every other human being. All the things that I talk about on this podcast should be challenged. If I say a thing that resonates with you, you should challenge that to see if there's value there for you. Um, if there is not value, you should cast it aside and go your own way and find find a new path or, or make your own path. If there is resonance there and you challenge it and you do find value, then you have something to work with. Anyhow, let's jump into episode 45 with Jason Lindgren covering full spectrum programming. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode. Uh, where are we? We're forty-five. Um, we're going to be covering, and Jason is back with me. Uh, we're going to be covering, I guess, what I'll describe as full spectrum programming. Uh, more specifically, we're going to center in a bit on modern music, and when I say modern music, mostly from the '60s forward. Um, I don't know how much we'll end up touching on rap, but we'll certainly cover um, a lot of rock history and other things. Having Jason here, who has nearly an encyclopedic knowledge of these things. I used to at one point uh, when I was still very into music before I came to understand what was going on. Um, anyhow, welcome, Jason. Hey, great to be back as always. How goes it, man? Great, beautiful day here. I think it's about 70. It's all good. Yeah, it, it feels like we're coming into spring here. We we really didn't get a lot of snow. Um, there was some cold for sure, but uh, it almost feels like we're up into spring now. Although you never know, man. It could be snowing in March. Um, it did last year. That That's how it is where I'm from in Pennsylvania. It was 70 yesterday, and I was like, yeah, but we always get that snowstorm in March. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm mentally pushing that away, so it's not a possibility. I go everywhere, and I tell everyone it's spring, trying to get everyone to buy into it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pathetic effort to get rid of winter. Um, I'm with you on that. <laughs> um, anyhow, we got quite a list to get through. Um, we're going to tie a lot of things together. And I think many people do not realize that, at least in the Western world that I'm familiar with, uh, we experience full spectrum, what I call full spectrum programming all the time. Uh, it comes at us everywhere media or information it doesn't matter whether it's the internet the news the television movies or music they are all basically owned by very few corporations and we'll get into that i've got an actual list that shows the timeline of going from something like the big five corporations that own mostly all of it down to what they're calling the big two or the big three um we'll cover that and and you know i'll preface our conversation by saying Whenever you see major corporations doing a merger, what you're looking at is the consolidation of power. Um, and you and I were just talking offline before we got started here, and you pointed out it's what we see from the banks. It's exactly what we see from the banks. And then they come up with these marketing propaganda schemes like Too Big to Fail to try to program the populace uh, into buying into these ideas. The problem here is that's just one small example, and the truth is is that we are getting it from every which angle. And the problem here is so many of us are so used to just turning on the television and watching a show that we're more sucked into the storyline than we are using our adult minds to break down what's being presented. Um, even the other day, uh, 
a family member was watching Big Bang and the programming was just outlandish. It's all I could see. And they were all sitting there laughing uh, because it's a comedy. Uh, what I saw was they were pushing the idea that two people that are together could not have individual thought. Uh, in the episode, Penny was into, I don't know, astrology or voodoo or you know something like this. And Leonard was questioning, how can I be with a girl? Um, I'd have to give up everything I believe in. And see, these are false constructs. This is programming. Um, if, if you want to take apart the storyline, Penny wasn't hurting anyone. Penny can think whatever she wants. It has no, no effect on what Leonard thinks. The truth of it is, is we all have the ability to think individually and add variety. And yet we see this type of programming as an example. But anyhow, you got anything you want to uh, add in before we jump in? Well, you said something interesting there. Yeah, the other character, Leonard, said that I have to give up everything I believe in. So he's believing in something. He doesn't know it's true. It's just what he wants to believe in. He wants to accept it. And that's what we see happening over and over again with all these situations that we, we've been discussing for months now. Yeah, a good example of it is politics. Uh, so many people being convinced of the false construct of the idea of red or blue, Democrat or Republican. Uh, these are false constructs. If a person was truly a person thinking with their higher mind, they could examine what they truly are concerned with in life, and they would find pretty quickly that neither one of these constructs totally fits what they're about. And yet what they do is surrender all that individuality to join the group, thereby reducing variety, and thereby giving a tool to the people in charge of media to drive wedges between everyone pushing the red-blue card, uh, as we saw so frequently during the, this election. It's really no different than what we saw in Big Bang or what I saw on Big Bang the other night. Uh, these are false constructs, and the truth is uh, every person who thinks something different, who thinks something unique, is adding variety to a system. It is variety in our culture, in our system, that helps us to flourish. And it is variety that the people that do not want our culture to flourish, that want our culture to be uh, basically locked down tight, uh, they want that variety gone. And so much of the system we're about to talk uh, about here, music and, and movies and just all of it, is designed to remove variety and uh, to kind of homogenize people. And not only that, to program them with common thoughts. And as an example of that, if you can imagine a super popular movie comes out, like let's say Star Wars, uh, how many people went out that night and saw that? So in this country, probably all over the world, I don't know, all those people experienced the same dialogue, the same storyline, the same programming, and then went back to their lives, um, all with this common new construct that had been inserted into their minds. And people don't take the time to break down what that actually means. If you were to reverse the clock to a time before motion pictures, what would all these families across the country be doing? They would have been doing their own thing. They would have been adding variety. They would have been doing the things they thought needed doing, and that's not where we are now, but unfortunately, so few of us can see it. Yeah, you're completely right. All right. Well, we've got a heck of a list. I'll, I'll just kick it straight over to you and let's jump in. So throughout history, music has always been used as a means of uh, controlling mass amounts of people, having their consciences being funneled towards a singular state of mind, uh, whether that's for better or for ill. And the best example to use for this would be religious rites. They've, they've always incorporated music into their services, whether it's a modern Catholic mass, which I always thought was interesting for that term, uh, a Native American spirit dance, a New Age meditation group, whatever it happens to be. It's all about using the sounds to 
get everyone thinking along the same lines as we were just saying, really, and get them all putting their directives mentally into one direction. And, and right away, when you think of it in that context, you can see how that could be used as a weapon. Right. And this is, you know, we will address some, I will take some direct quotes from around the outskirts of the programming, basically corporations and, and uh, committees that, that are behind all this. Um, they hide behind corporations. It's hard to know exactly who they are. We know royal families, you know, places like the Vatican, other places are in on this, but they're absolutely aware of what this mass communication can do. And I would point out how many weddings have gone on in the last few months where the wedding march was played in every single one of them. Well, why? Why? I mean, it's it's the homogenization of everything. And when we begin to break down something like a wedding even further, I would go as far as to say um, that our idea of what modern love should be, what a couple should become, a man and a woman, has been wholly brought to us and programmed in place by media by movies, by television, by music, by all of it. Um, if we didn't have these things, the idea of what marriage should be or maybe what love between man and a woman would be a wholly different thing. Um, and that is a crazy, crazy thing to think about. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, I don't know what the numbers are, are but what would you think? Like 90% of weddings are pretty much the exact same thing? Well, I mean, you, you, you can tell. I mean, we even have wedding planners and whole industries that um, are pretty much reshaping the same event over and over and over. And, you know, we've talked in past episodes um, about this a bit. Why the hell is a free human being, an adult human being, do I need to ask anyone's permission to get married? Why do I need a, a wedding license or a marriage license? Um, back in the day when they were taking uh, our blood, claiming that they had to know our RH factors, you can see the control constructs around these things. And I would point out that um, in the modern age, people need to really start reassessing. I mean, do we need to go ask the city if we can get married and get a license from somebody? Do we need a priest to officiate in some way, shape, or form? I mean, come on. We're either free adults or we're not. Um, that's my point of view. And what a lot of people don't realize is what that is. is it's the merger of two corporations. It's your two corporate identities doing business together. And there it is. I mean, we could, we'll, we'll probably avoid it for this conversation, but there is the straw man construct coming back into it. When you begin to take apart why we go get a license and why these things are happening and why the church is involved and uh, all these things that go on, I mean, you just summed it up right there. It's because you've been made into a corporation and this is literally a merger of two corporations when a wedding occurs. And why do you need a license? It's to ask permission for something to do, be able to do something that's otherwise illegal. Right. And I would point out that it's not illegal to decide that you're going to spend your life with someone and, you know, make up your own wedding, make up your own vows. Um, the, there's no person in the world that can come tell you you can't do that, at least in the country I live in. Um, if they did, I'd laugh them, you know, I'd laugh in their face. Uh, it's an option that we have. And yet we've been so programmed, we fall back into the trap of supporting the construct with when, you know, that we've been born into, basically. Right. And I hope all these little things we're throwing out there about the straw man identity gets people thinking and looking into it more. And maybe it, we can do a future episode where we really, really go do some serious homework, go into it and rip it apart. Uh, I'm actually trying to do more of that myself with some other people. But getting back to the music thing, music in general has always been used to sway moods and affect emotional states. Specific emotional channels would be part of performances, be they live theater or later in motion pictures, which would have the background or accompanying music working its magic to captivate the audience. Uh, I, I honestly think a great example would be the soundtrack to Star Wars, especially when it first came out in 1977. 
Uh, it would never have obtained the iconic status that it holds and have that powerful effect on people if, if that really well-known and well-done theme tune wasn't there. You know, people that that's what people associate with now. They hear that music, that fanfare starts, and man, I'm watching a Star Wars movie, and boom, your mind is there. And there it is, and it's full orchestration. But as I was doing the research for this episode, I came across some stats about grocery stores and uh, what they've learned and why they pipe the music in while you're shopping. Um, <clears throat> some of the things that I saw, there were varying um, varying numbers, but one of the things I noticed was they found if they used lower tempo rock music or pop music, you know, you know current music, uh, sales would go up into the 30-some percentile. So you can see the programming effect of music there. The reason they would do that, I would think, is because just like watching television and all that, you kind of slip into a, a, an altered state when, when you have that because you're letting go part of your conscious mind. You're, you're getting into the groove of what you're hearing. And it just like with all this stuff, it, it definitely captures your mind. I'm not saying music is bad. Like, I don't want anyone to think that. It's just it can be used in certain ways because you as a conscious being are interacting with what's going on. Well, there's another thing that anyone could notice, um, the commonality between uh, classic or popular music from our culture since maybe the 60s and movies. If you go back to the 80s and you look at the movies that were really music driven, um, you can tell that the music that is being used is going to have to be paid for because it's copywritten. And so you'll hear small segments, you'll hear music that was not quite the most popular, you hear all these things in the older movies. You come up to the common era and what you actually see is now what's a good example uh like some of these marvel movies where they just start busting out with acdc songs that you know they're going to pay huge royalties on well i did some looking into this what we see is that so few corporations own so much that the same corporation that's funding a particular movie already owns the artist that made the music they want to use so it appears um, when we see modern television shows, just pay attention to the popularity of the music being played. And what you're seeing is the result of mergers where they really don't have to contact another corporation anymore for the most part to ask permission or pay royalties. It's already under their umbrella, so they use it. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. So as the tw what we were discussing was was throughout all of history and and definitely music was used in religious ceremonies, stage theater, all that. But as you get into the 20th century, certain organizations began realizing just how powerful a weapon that music could be to affect large amounts of people at the same time. So what I'm going to give you here is kind of a back history before we get up into the more modern uh, era of music to, so you know what was going on in decades past to set us up for w why things are the way they are now. So first one I'm going to get into is Wellington House. It's the first of these organizations that um, really started uh, learning how to manipulate on a mass scale. It was set up in 1914, in 1914 during World War I by the British government in London uh, upon discovering that Germany had a propaganda agency, um, <clears throat> didn't, but the German one didn't have anywhere near the reach and power that, that the British one did. The goal of Wellington House was to help promote Britain's interests regarding the war. One of the biggest targets was the United States to help in Britain's war efforts uh, to get the U.S. to enter on the Allies' behalf. Because at the time, that, that whole, uh, no, that's a European problem, you, you go deal with that, that's not, it's not got nothing to do with us. So that's when they started coming up with the term isolationist and all that and just bombarding the American people so that they can sway the opinion and get the United States to fight on Britain's behalf. 
the interesting thing is 25 notable authors were invited to be part of this to discuss ways of, of how they're going to target the populations. Uh, two really big uh, notable names are Arthur Conan Doyle and H.G. Wells. And that, there it is, man, Sir Ar- Arthur Conan Doyle. So you're saying 25 notable authors that inc- include a knighted author and H.G. Wells, which we've already demonstrated was on the outskirts of the Tavistock and Frankfurt schools. Um, this is full spectrum control, even in 1914. While they didn't have the corporations all merged together so that all these record companies and movie companies and television companies, well, it's 1914, of course, so some of those things don't even exist yet. What they are doing is coming at you full spectrum with what they do have. And so they get 25 authors together. And uh, back in the day, people were reading a hell of a lot more um, because there were no movies to go to and no TV to watch. So there it is, man, early full spectrum um, attacks on the uh, on the psyche of a population. Yeah, you can see the, the setup right from the get-go. And later on, they added artists and other people. But the, from, right from the beginning, you can see that the what we have today, they, they thought of this right from the beginning. Everyone involved was sworn to complete secrecy, and as the Great War waged on, Wellington House branched out its manipulations to include art as well as print media. This is considered to have been quite effective, and it's at the stage for the later Tavistock Institute, which a lot of folks who, if you look into this stuff, Tavistock is the name that always comes up. Right. I mean, it is the kind of go-to name. And, and for anyone who looks into Tavistock, you know, you can go you can go back earlier. But what, what it seems to be, uh, having done some of the research on this for other episodes, it seems to have come out of um, the constructs of Sigmund Freud, uh, Carl Jung, and people like that. Uh, what they were supposedly uncovering, if they were real people, doesn't matter. We have the books, so the ideas are real. Um, this is what really started it, and you get over into the Frankfurt School, but it was in these early early inkling-like times where they began to realize that the human brain could be hacked. Yes, that's exactly it. So the Tavistock Institute was a branch of an earlier organization called the Tavistock Clinic, which was a nonprofit and still is a nonprofit organization that was set up in 1920 in London uh, that dealt with various psychological issues, uh, as well as a very interesting thing called action research, a term that was coined in 1944. In a 1946 paper, Action Research and Minority Problems, it is described as a comparative research on the conditions and effects of various forms of social action and research leading to social action that uses a spiral of steps, each of which is composed of a circle of planning, action, and fact-finding about the result of the action. Uh, This seems to be the one way in which mass social engineering was being studied for future endeavors. Its original work was on studying uh, shell shock, from which is the term they used for uh, soldiers returning from World War One with PTSD. And they were interested to see what the breaking point of men would be. Just what did these men go, go through? How far did they go before they start having severe effects? That sort of thing. So you're looking at the mid-40s here, um, and already they are putting finite planning with pen and paper pencil and paper, uh, these very detailed, finite plans where they lay out something, they monitor that thing, they collect the data after the fact, and they do it over and over and over, which gives them a law of averages, if nothing else, where they can tend to understand that if these things are put in place with this kind of a group of people, this is the outcome we should expect. Well, 
it's a bit shocking to think about this going on in 1944, but now let's fast forward up to the modern area where we have computers. These guys were using pens and papers and slide rules and typewriters to do this. Now we have computers. Every computer that will be touched today is going to log everything it does. Most of what people do on computers today will be logged on a server somewhere or somewhere else, stuff put in a database. The truth is, is that these people can get real-time data now um, on any given event. And when we look at things like false flag events, it probably really doesn't even matter if they fail really badly at one of these events because they get real-time data on the back of it that tells them exactly what happened and how to avoid it in the future. But I mean, this really draws a picture of in the 40s coming from the kind of analog age where people are pushing pencils up to now where all they have to do is get on a computer system that's in the know and they've got all the data they could ever wish for at their fingertips. Yep, exactly. And don't forget, people are still people. So what they were learning back in the, the, the teens, the 20s, 30s, 40s, that can still be applied to people today. Right. And it's kind of scary, too, because as I did the Tavistock research for an earlier episode, um, there were German mathematicians who had already started to come up with algorithms that were considered uh, time machines because they could predict the future uh, the predict future events to a 90-something percent certainty. So when you consider all the way back in the 40s, all this stuff going on, what do you suspect is going on now that everybody's data, I mean, basically their lifetimes are being collected? Every time you use a card, a library card, you get into your car with GPS, you pick up your phone, all of that is logged. So the power of all this stuff designed so long ago, um, it's immeasur- it's immeasurable at this point. I mean, it's hard to even understand how much power it gives them. And this is what we hear about Google, too, that, that they have this AI system set up that can predict your behavior to 90 plus percent per, uh, percent accuracy. So, uh, of course, you know, it's about data points. It's it's I always used to analogize using the uh, the weather idea. Um, people used to always complain, how come they can't predict the weather right? And the response was always, well, if we had enough data, we could get it right every time. If we could put a weather sensor every half a mile all over the world, um, we would absolutely have enough data points to get it right. And to some degree, that's a true thing. Not that I agree. Um, <laughs> you know, at, at this point, I wonder if the weather is actually scheduled. But my point being, with enough data points, you can, in fact, look into the future. Yeah, absolutely. So the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations was initiated in 1946 when it separated from the Tavistock Clinic, funded by a grant, and here we go, from the Rockefeller Foundation. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Keep in mind that this is a British establishment and the Rockefellers are American. So here we go. Right from an early stage, we can see the, the intertwining of... The, the big money families that everybody knows about in conspiracy circles, they're, they're, they're doing, doing the deeds right from the beginning. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, just for a bit of background, was established in 1913 with the stated mission of promoting the well-being of humanity throughout the world. So, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think their idea of well-being may be a little different than ours. <laughs> I think so. Uh, The Tavistock Institute is described as a not-for-profit organization concerned with group behavior and organizational behavior. Today, it has ties and is interwoven with numerous other organizations all over the world, some of which, and you're going to know these names too, some of which are the Stanford Institute, the Club of Rome, the Trilateral Commission, and the Rand Corporation. 
so there, there's the movers and shakers. You know, the, these are the people that are in the highest overarching organizations, think tanks and other things. Um, and they're tied right in with what Tavistock was doing, which is basically comes down to taking large groups of people and figuring out how to control them. Yep. Uh, even though the wiki article on Tavistock poo-poos the idea of it being part of any conspiracy theories, the connections it has to so many other establishments that are well known for their work in social engineering and mass global manipulation, it kind of seals the deal. It's like, sure, you can, you can, <laughs> you can put it down that, that this is a conspiracy theory, but it's not. It's, it's quite <laughs> yeah. obvious. When you see, and, and there was like a huge list, I only picked a few of them that I know people would recognize. When you see how all these organizations intertwine, how one spawned the next, the next, the next, the next, and I could go, I could do a two hour show just on this nonsense. They've got their fingers everywhere in so many pies. It's, you know, it's not arguable. And this is why we have terms like conspiracy theory. What it does is it insulates and it protects them. Some thinking individual will go out, do the research, begin to understand what he or she is looking at, and then they'll be labeled the conspiracy nut. The truth is, is this is not an arguable point. We know damn well what these things are doing. Club of Rome, Trilateral Commission, Tavistock, um, the Frankfurt School, even all the way back to Freud and Jung, we know what they were doing. Um, they were working towards hacking the human mind in a mass way, um, not just onesies and twosies, you know, taking whole states, whole countries, subjugating them down, putting them in groups that are controllable, and then figuring out how to manipulate and homogenize the entirety of that group. And just so you can see how easy, how, how good they are at insulating themselves, by coming up with that term conspiracy theory that was originally, if I remember correctly, it was about the Kennedy assassination, they, they used that as like a catch-all. So you think Kennedy may have had some funny business, but uh, they also use it for Bigfoot people and UFO people and Loch Ness Monster people and then people who challenge the Federal Reserve not being a government organization. They lap all these things under conspiracy theory so that something that actually has some credibility like what we're discussing here, you know, gets not locked up with a bunch of nonsense. Right. And that's exactly what it is. You know, when you start talking about, you know, Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, you're just tying a term to nonsense, to laughable nonsense. The problem is, is that people love mysteries and it is so easy for the human mind to get entrapped in a mystery and need more details and get sucked right into it. Um, the UFO thing is that in a big way. Well, you can logically sit here and, as a person and wonder, is it really possible that human beings are the only game in town? And I think the average person would probably come to think, well, maybe that's not even a possible thing. I don't know. The problem here is there's no foundation for to go any further. There's really no, no there there that didn't come from the usual suspects. I mean, Tavistock even admits to having created the whole alien agenda and the Roswell nonsense off the 33rd parallel. So you hit it on the head, Jason. Um, these terms are made up. They're, they're used to protect and insulate um, the people that don't want to be put in the spotlight. And then they mix, you know, mix, mix it up in a big bowl of crazy um, and then dish it out to the public. Yeah. And what's what's really interesting is after doing several months in a row of a lot of research and I, I messaged this to you yesterday, like, wow, man, and just like looking at all this stuff uh, all together as quickly as I have been. I mean, it's not spread out over years. I just did this over the past two months. It's like it's so obvious, like how everything ties together. And it's like I logically knew that. But looking at all these facts and all these things in such a short amount of time, it's like, damn, man. I mean, like they they really know what they're doing. Well, I mean, this, this kind of underscores the point here, Jason. If a person was left alone 
um, and didn't have to go to work eight hours a day, sleep eight hours a day, get up with the remaining eight hours they have of their life left and pay taxes and go get a license and do all these other things that the system is putting on us, they would actually have time to think. For those people who do have time to think because they refuse to go with the system or for whatever reason, it's not a mystery and it's not conspiracy. You can look at it for what it is and you know you just underscored it. You looked at it for two months and there's really no going back, is there? No. And it's like I knew all these things, like generally speaking, I knew I had a general overview of what was going on. But looking at facts and looking at the corporations and the timelines like this and doing it so quickly it's like wow these these thing it's like a spider web it's just like it's completely intertwined with with each other and yeah it's it's crazy man if anybody does this for a short amount of time you start seeing it well what's really scary to me is the level of planning that went into it i mean we could even look at the birth of corporations you know i've talked about this before where some accounts claim it was to protect the rights of african americans there are other claims made but the truth is is that the first year incorporation came to be more corporations in the way we would recognize them were set up and even the creation of corporation is playing in to the brave new world idea um, that's why we have corporations people People think it's so that you can be protected in your business and there's all these other reasons that you need a corporation. Poppycock. Corporation was created so that each individual could be incorporated and that these organizations that want to take control are then protected by incorporation and the laws that surround incorporation. It's a, it's a crazy, crazy thing. And when you look at it, the level of planning that has gone into all this is staggering. Absolutely. So all of this that we've just been discussing is the backdrop for how popular music was created, manipulated, and used as a weapon for mass social change. The first real direct indications of all of this going on, all the dirty pool that was going on behind the scenes, it really starts showing with the advent of rock and roll in the 1950s. Uh, this can also be said to go hand in hand with the beatnik movement that was uh, quite prevalent, started uh, coined by Jack Kerouac in 1948, but it was prevalent all through the 1950s and up until about the mid-1960s when the hippie, movement, uh, the hippie movement kind of wiped it out. So you see a very distinct change from the big band music and the jazz and all the stuff that people would have been listening to, like the World War II generation. Rock and roll was kind of like this very new thing, and the one thing I noticed over and over and over again is how this always targets the minds of the youth get them while they're young while they're still fiery and and very independent and open to new ideas things that their parents aren't into their parents wouldn't get it so right from the get-go you see that this is how they're doing it well the average person probably can't even imagine what it would be like to live in that generation when rock and roll is coming online you're young you're bulletproof uh, all your life, you've heard things like the Glenn Miller Band, um, this whole other kind of more soothing music, and suddenly, bang, there's rock and roll in your face, jacking up the excitement, ratcheting up the sexuality, ratcheting up um, just the emotional level. Um, it had to have been a heck of a thing. I mean, you can still read accounts where people are referring to blues and rock and roll as the devil's music for the reasons I'm citing, but, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. Look what happens when the Beatles come to town. Um you know, all, all these young girls are literally losing their minds. And this is a direct result of the programming that is rock and roll. Absolutely. So the early days of rock and roll are, like you said, quite tame compared to the standards of today. However, at its place in time, it was 
definitely, without a doubt, groundbreaking and caused a lot of societal upheaval. You know, the, definitely all the older generations that would have been growing up, even people from the 1800s, some of them were still alive in the 1950s when all this started coming around. So very different mindsets. So early superstars such as Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, and Little Richard, uh, they all performed on uh, in a much more sexually explicit manner than had ever been seen before. And, of course, this had massive appeal to the younger generations. Um, this sort of behavior was in stark contrast to anything that would have gone on before, who are obviously very conservative beyond belief, at least as far as, you know, a public image that they would have. You know, it's crazy, too, to think about because we're, you know, as these guys are coming online, maybe we're into the early 60s here. Um, by the time they're really picking up speed, you've got to realize 60s is the decade that gave us birth control, I believe. Yes. So, I, I mean, even the pharmaceutical corporations are going to get in on this free love push and the hypersexuality. Um, and, you know, you go back and look at the Beatles films uh, of the young girls. I mean, a lot of those girls in those pictures don't look like they're much more than 13 years old. Um it's crazy to think about. And the problem here is, is that we've all been the frog in boiling water. Um, what we're talking about now kind of pales in comparison to what we see now from music and from videos. But it, the whole time it's been ratcheting up bit by bit by bit. Anyhow. So bear in mind where we're at in our timeline here. We're in the 1950s. Elvis is the thing, all this new music. But at the same time, we have something by the CIA being created called the MK Ultra Program. And it was officially sanctioned in 1953, so still actually really early. They they had some they had some things in mind already before really rock and roll even got a hold. Now, part of the MK Ultra program utilized a drug called LSD. This mind-altering drug was used in interrogation and torture techniques, in an attempt to coerce information out of unwilling subjects. MK Ultra was also used to study and create various other methods of mind control for several decades until its official disbanding in the 70s. Yeah, this is, you know, this is really where any person with eyes can see. Um, they basically waged war on the young generations coming out of the 50s into the 60s. One of the things they did was create LSD. LSD was created at the universities. It's open record now. Um, as a matter of fact, I have some things that I'll probably read later in the show that talk about how these corporations have merged down to just a couple entities owning basically everything. Um, but universities are included in this. Um, the corporate control, the CIA control, and when I did the research for the earlier Tavistock show, um, there was not really a prestigious university you could point to um, at that time that had not been infiltrated by the CIA or some like you know, military industrial complex type, you know, place. Here's the point. They plan to do battle with rock and roll as music, and they plan to hit a generation, which is basically the young people coming out of the 50s into the 60s. They create the drug LSD created in the in the universities, which are co-opted by uh, the shady outfits I just mentioned. And then they weave it back into the music so that we have this psychedelic imagery that comes along. And it was maybe one of the most successful things you could imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think now that we've given you a bit of a backdrop, we can throw in a couple of the quotes from big figures of the time uh, who definitely would have been in the know about all these things that were going on. So, impersonal forces over which we have almost no control seem to be pushing us all in the direction of the brave New Worldian nightmare. And this 
personal pushing is being consciously accelerated by representatives of commercial and political organizations who have developed a number of new techniques for manipulating in the interest of some minority the thoughts and feelings of the masses. And that's Aldous Huxley from his preface to A Brave New World. And there it is, man. Uh, you, you see quotes from people, um, and and some of them are stunning. But this is the man that wrote Brave New World. And as I've said so long, uh, Brave New World is a snapshot of where we're going. And he knew it back then when he wrote it, which was a hell of a long time ago. Um, I don't know. Do you want to cover any of these other quotes that, that get into this? Well, yeah. I want to throw in the Edward Bernays one next uh, from his book Propaganda because this was written during the World War II era. So this was already someone uh, – thinking this way before Tavistock and everything even came about yet. So he says in his book, Propaganda, the American motion picture is the greatest unconscious carrier of propaganda in the world today. It is a great distributor for ideas and opinions. The motion picture can standardize the ideas and habits of a nation. Because pictures are made to meet market demands, they reflect emphasize and even exaggerate broad popular tendencies rather than stimulate new ideas and opinions. The motion picture avails itself only of ideas and facts which are in vogue. As the newspaper seeks to purvey news, it seeks to purvey entertainment. And this is decades before <laughs> the blockbuster uh, yeah. of Jaws and Star Wars and Close Encounters. This was, I don't know exactly what year that's from, but that is somewhere around the 1940s, I believe. Right. It, it's, a, it's almost quaint that he, he closes as the newspaper seeks to purvey news. Um, I think we all know that there's not a news organization left in the world that's purveying anything that resembles news. But I mean, here it is. This quote from Edward Bernays from his book Propaganda basically shows what I've been harping on show after show. This is the homogenization of a world population. This is the limiting of variety. This is the segmenting of society. This is the nuts and bolts of how you get on the road to a brave new world. Right. And the last one I think we should throw out here that's uh, time appropriate is by Jacques Ellul. It is the emergence of mass media which makes possible the use of propaganda techniques on a societal scale, the orchestration of press, radio, and television to create a continuous, lasting, and total environment renders the influence of propaganda virtually unnoticed precisely because it creates a constant environment. Mass media provides the essential link between the individual and the demands of the technological society. And again, this would have been decades before anything we see today. And there it is. And there's the pre-planning. Uh, you know, it was so long ago. And to read a quote like this, it's almost like some guy wrote it yesterday. But he's not pulling the punches and he's not getting it wrong. The orchestration of press, radio, and television to create a continuous, lasting, and total environment renders the influence of propaganda virtually unnoticed precisely because it creates a constant environment. That one line in a nutshell covers, I don't know, 20 of the shows I have done here. Um, there it is in black and white. If you can't hear what's being said here, you're missing the boat. Now, what's interesting is think about where we're at in our timeline here in the 1950s. Most right. people would picture this conservative United States picture of leave it to beaver and all that where, you know, everyone's nice and polite and all that. And here we are discussing all these things that are actually going on in the background. So they're painting this picture of one thing, but in reality, it's something else entirely. Now we're throwing this rock and roll thing into the mix, and it's just making people it, – it's, it's just throwing them so off kilter that, um, you know, they can start remolding people into what they want it to be. 
So we have rock and roll establishing a huge foothold in the consciousness of mainstream society all throughout the 1950s and then into the 1960s. Elvis Presley, as previously mentioned, he's the first ever mega superstar, the biggest in the world. And he's crossing over not just as a music performer, but also being into a movie star. He did so many movies, it's silly, and they were pretty much all the same movie over and over and over again. Now, Elvis was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1958 and served until 1960, and even that made constant news. He was always kept in the limelight. Uh, Elvis had a massive career that lasted until his death in 1977 at the age of 42. Poppycock. <laughs> the hey, amount of people who emulated Elvis' signature look, style, and singing over the years is an absolute perfect example of how an iconic figure can be used to get the public to emulate whatever hero they want to put out there. And and I would point out, and many people probably won't want to hear this, but Elvis Presley was basically an early version of Britney Spears. He didn't write any of his own music. He was basically a performer. So logically, one could come to consider that Elvis was a construct. Um, how you prove that, I'm not exactly sure. Um, there is that bizarre twin story that goes along with Elvis. My point being is you're looking at someone they still call the king, uh, maybe considered one of the greatest you know, rock pioneers anywhere of any time, and the man never wrote a song. All he did was perform like a singing monkey. Yep, he had the look that image, the, the sexual swagger they wanted, and that's that's what they did. Now, not to say he wasn't good at what he what he did. He was fantastic at it, but they, of they saw a good thing, and, and that's what they did. Well, but very, very few people remember, you know, they remember Beatlemania as being the first kind of hysterical, mass hyst hysterical thing, but there is an Elvis mania that precedes Beatlemania that people can look into, and I think the claim is that I've forgotten. Now, as an 11-year-old girl, of course, the casting of a spell um, gets killed or trampled or something like this. I've forgotten. But anyone can go look at the early Elvis mania where it appears what happened is they whipped out their rock and roll. They whipped out their dancing monkey, who was one of the best performers in the world and maybe is still considered such today. And they implemented this ratcheting, emotional kind of ramping up directed at very young women, um, which is the same thing Beatlemania did later. So Absolutely. Elvis started, yeah, Elvis started that. Yeah. Elvis was the first like singular pop star by himself. And then the Beatles were the first super group. But the interesting thing is if you look at all the early Beatles stuff and they themselves admitted this, they were huge into Elvis and all that sort of look, all the early Beatles pictures, they've got that look. That's they wanted to be like the Americans, you know, so you can see how how it even worked on some people who went who did, then went on to become the next big icons themselves. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because it is kind of a weird construct, the crossover between Britain and America as we get into rock and roll. Um, I've stated a lot of times on the record that MTV was the second British invasion. Um, if you go back and look at the early videos on MTV, it almost appears that Americans didn't know how to make videos here in the land of Hollywood. Almost all the videos you're watching are coming from Britain. But here, you make a good point. There were so many of the not quite yet very iconic, famous British invasion rock bands that were looking at American music and using it as the template, which they basically take over at some point. But, I mean, you're a musician. Would you agree with me? I mean, if we had to look at the musical foundation of what made early rock and roll, would you agree with me that a big part of that was blues? Oh, heavens, yes. That's actually what a lot of the basis of even what I do is my soloing style is very bluesy. 
because it, it fits. It, it it works in with all that. You know, my main draws are from the '60s and the psychedelic stuff. But if you listen to any of my leads or anything like that, directly taken from the blues. So of course, any kid who goes out to to want to play rock and roll, one of the first things he's going to learn is twelve bar blues. Well, this roots back into the Delta music from the African African American communities. My point here is that. Well, go ahead, Jason. You're a better musician than I am. Describe to people what makes a blues scale a blues scale. Um, and I'm referring to the devil's tone. Well, the, the whole blues thing really developed in... Robert Johnson's considered the biggest in, in the 1930s. But uh, there were a lot of people who were kind of doing that thing. And it was very simple music, but very expressive music. And um, it wasn't overly complicated. Like the one of the first things I ever teach anybody if they ask me to, to show them somehow to solo is the A minor pentatonic blues scale, which is five notes. That's the pentatonic. And with that, you can move up and down the, the neck and be in any key and still sound like you know what you're doing and a lot of the the 50s and 60s musicians that was the extent of what they knew but they they put such a good vibe to it and and played with feel it just it captures the emotions and that's what i really think it is about the blues blues is all about capturing the emotions uh even though it started with with black culture in the, the mississippi delta coming from basically down, downtroddenness it got taken and and put out there in a different way that um that effect is still being felt today Right. And I think the illusion I was making that wasn't too clear there um, is if if we go back to the church-driven societies pre-1900s, um, there was already a word for a certain scale and a certain note um, that appears in blue scales. And um, what is it? Is it the diminished fifth, Jason? Do I have that right? Uh, you're talking about the Diablo and Musica. Right, exactly. Well, go ahead. Take it. I forget what, what the note is, actually, but I know exactly what you're referring to. And yes, the blues did use that. So, of course, that made it a target by, you know, the, the people of the day. Right. The point I'm making is that early on, way, way back, before we had all our music jacked up into the 440 hertz range and all these things, there was chamber music, there was orchestration, there was all these things. And yet, anyone who played the kind of music, the scales that were going to go into the blues, were considered some really radical devil-loving people, for lack of a better term. As a matter of fact, I think Paganini is one of these people. As a matter of fact, I think Paganini was one of the first recorded cases, if he was indeed a real man, of having people pass out listening to his music and freak out. Um, and it's I, I think it's the devil's fifth is what they called it. He was using those notes. So there is some esoteric occult reason for the naming of these things. And you can see the effect of what it has in rock music. I mean, without those blues scales, you really don't have rock and roll. Right. And e even the, the power chord that's used is a one and a five. It, it just seems like this is a... Um... A repeated meme right it's it's almost like it's almost like a punch in the stomach doubled um when you think about a power chord uh some of the bands for people who aren't really musical you might think of someone like acdc is big for using chords like this it's just that really kind of punch in the stomach um chord that is different than stroking all six strings at once right so keep that in mind as well folks as we're going through the history here that this was put into rock music and then carried forward all through up until today. So we have, as the 1950s transitioning into the 1960s, the emergence of superstar rock groups, as we were just discussing, that are now coming to the forefront. And the two of the biggest were, of course, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. 
They both started off as cover bands doing bluesy kind of music, ironically enough, but both rose to immense fame by the 1960s, as I'm sure everyone knows. There was also a kind of made-up rivalry with fans of both bands that got fueled in, in the pop newspapers for years. You were either a Beatles fan or a Stones fan, but heaven forbid you were never both. You know, that's a funny thing. Um, I've heard people talk uh, who were involved with these bands, supposedly, about the marketing that went into it. And what they try to push out to the public, whether it's true or not, I don't know, is that the Beatles had this good boy kind of persona. So then the Stones yeah. were marketed in the opposite direction. But I would point out it has to be something more than that. I mean, they put out an album at, at one point called Goat's Head Soup. And in the center of the album, there's basically a pot of soup with a goat's head cooking in it. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> it kind of got a bit steroided out to be just simply marketing. But who the heck knows? Yeah, and there are definite ties between um, later on, late, late 60s, early 70s, where Mick Jagger is tied in with actual Satanists and all that, and um, we can get into that once we get there. Oh, well, r remind me, um, when we get there, I've got to tell you this thing that I found about the band Coven. Remember the band Coven, One Tin Soldier? Yeah. Um, remind me to talk about Coven. Um, I haven't researched this fully yet, but it is a bit of a shell shocker. <laughs> so... Here's where we tie in the whole MK Ultra with the LSD, because now LSD begins to make its mark on 1960s culture with the very first of what's called the acid tests taking place on November 27, 1965 in Soquel, California. These things were set up by author Ken Kesey, and the first one took a place at the home of a man named Ken Babs. Several members of what a band that would soon be called the Grateful Dead they were called the Warlocks at this point, attend this first event. <laughs> and this is very, very important. This is how they got LSD into everything. You know, this is how the drugs got mixed with the music right from the get-go here in the early, uh, well, I guess this would be the mid-60s. Well, you know, this is one, every time I see something like this, it, it cracks me up. Uh, I always flash back to that Mel Gibson movie. Um, I think it's called Conspiracy Theory. Is that right? Yes. Um, but anyhow, you know, they play him off as a crazy dude so that everything that comes out of his mouth is questionable. But he's really telling you the truth. A lot of the stuff he's rambling off is verbatim what's going on and one of the things he says is yeah the grateful dead or cia operatives and they are and this demonstrates it here we have a group of guys calling themselves the warlocks so there's the crossover to the kind of luciferian mindset i'll talk about coven later um because that is really the onset of the first people throwing the devil's horns and going down this whole occult road that nobody seems to understand but the the grateful dead switches its name to the grateful dead and growing up in southern california i remember when i got one of my early vehicles someone gave me grateful dead stickers that were cool i never really liked the dead that much but i put the stickers on my car and shortly after i put the stickers on my car people were coming up to me to ask me for drugs and i shortly found out <laughs> later that these certain stickers i had on my car were advertising you know come ask me for drugs i had no idea at the time i was just a you know a young kid but um you're looking at total agents of the system in, in this bullet point where lsd comes online and there's the loyal grateful dead to ensure that it gets mainlined into society's arm well, the Grateful Dead is automatically associated with going on massive acid trips. 
It's just that's just what it is, you know. Well, they were popularizing. It'd be interesting to know if any of those guys actually did acid in their life or whether they're acting the whole time. I don't know the answer to that. But the point is, is they created a whole culture around the very drug that was going to be used to immobilize a generation. And the generation we're talking about here had big plans, peace and love and, you know, sharing and being concerned about other living things. They had big plans and this was completely derailed. And for my money, uh, the drugs that came into the picture are almost wholly the foundation that the destruction of that generation was built on. Oh, yeah. So these events, these acid tests, go on for the next few years, and the Grateful Dead uh, is frequently playing at them. So they're, they're having these massive house parties with the Grateful Dead jamming along while everybody's tripped out of their minds on LSD. Uh, another big figure that everyone's heard of, of course, is Timothy Leary, who was a Harvard professor, and he's supposed to also be a CIA <laughs> asset. He helped spread the drug and this mindset amongst the populace with uh, the popular phrase, turn in, turn in, yeah, tur- what is- tune in, turn on, drop out. There it is. And he uh, helped put that out there. And he supposedly got it from someone else that during conversations, but he put that out there in a speech that he was giving in 1966. So, and I think it was before like 30,000 people. So there he is planting the seeds to these people, and they're taking it. And of course, by by this point, people are already hearing about this new cultural thing going on. And this this is also what's set up for the hippie movement. So all of these things are going on. Uh, pre-internet and they're still able to spread a message just by word of mouth because they're using music to tie it all together. And and how, you know, here's the thing, sign of the times. I mean, people who go to college now are basically from well-to-do families, either that or they're going into debt for a lot of years after the fact. But here you're looking at a professor, a supposed professor from one of the most prestigious universities actually taking part in helping dope out the kids. Can you imagine what the adults must have been thinking back then as all this shift was happening where they began to realize that, man, my kid could even go to Harvard and he's not going to escape what's going on here. It must have just been overwhelming. That's what I always thought is just when you see people who are the more conservative old-fashioned types – I don't think they knew just how to deal with this stuff. It was so shocking and and so absurd in comparison to the way they, in their mindset, society is supposed to be. It probably put them almost into a PTSD kind of thing. Well, it's funny because it's almost like there was no hope because, you see, as this was going on and we can imagine, you know, adults and grandparents having all this concern for this big shift that's, you know, tectonic shift that's happening with this generation, their kids, their grandkids, um, there was really no way around it because it had already been codified in the album. So the very culture of the day was going to be delivered via LPs, records, um, and everything that was going on was being reinforced and built into the music that was being delivered. And basically that music that the kids were listening to were outlining every facet of the culture. I mean, we even have a song, um, What's that song? Hitchin' a Ride. Remember the old song, Hitchin' a Ride? They they even, you know, back in the day when everyone was hitchhiking, they even codified that portion of, you know, oh, free love, we're all together, you know, doing this thing, we party together. So they write a song called Hitching a Ride, and you've always got to imagine, is this a band echoing what's going on, or is this just more of the social programming reinforcing this new movement? Right, and once you get the whole thing going, people will start doing it for you anyway, even if they're not directly involved. Good point. You know, they're gonna, they, you know, it's kind of like you, you light the fire and then it's just going to keep going. So even if some people, music, whatever, is being written that's not necessarily a direct 
uh, order from an institute, people are just like, this is the culture. I'm going to write in the culture. You know, this is what I'm into. Even if they may not even be under orders from anyone, they're just doing it because they're now a part of the whole movement. Right. They're integrated. Um, and the integration has come from being part of the culture and then being programmed by the things that are important to that in culture. And in this culture, the main thing going was uh, music, uh, the, the LP, the uh, the vinyl album. But to some degree, uh, movies were even doing it. We can look at movies like uh, what's that Dennis Hopper film? Easy Rider. Easy Rider. Yeah. Yeah. Where they're making the divisiveness, the fear porn, a problem of, you know, oh, these people won't accept the hippies. Someone even gets killed at the end but the point is is the whole trend of that movie is to reinforce the culture that's being pushed forward on the back of the drug culture that was created in the universities yeah now what's interesting is the whole acid test party thing ended when lsd was made illegal on october 24th 1968 being a bill being passed by congress but here's the thing. The induction of LSD into the counterculture movement, it was complete by this time. It didn't matter. LSD was completely intertwined as well as just drug use in general, completely hand in hand with the music of the day. You know, it, it always reminds me there is a clip somewhere of George Harrison talking about um, he wants to come to America to go to Haight-Ashbury and see what it's all about for the first time. Um, he goes and he's wholly unimpressed and says something to the effect of, I went over there, they were all drugged out on acid, and I think he calls them a bunch of spotty kids um, and claims that he swears, oh, looks looks at LSD under a microscope and it looks like a tattered knotted rope or something like this, and he swears off LSD and never does it again because of those poor, lost, spotty American kids that he saw at Haight-Ashbury. So here we have one of the prime movers and shakers of this so-called psychedelic culture that has grown up. And when he goes over to look at what's going on, uh, he walks away stunned at just the sad, sad state of affairs that he witnesses. Yeah. Yeah. The, George Harrison seemed to be the more laid back but aware of the Beatles. That's kind of how I always took him because he would always kind of say profound things and seem to be chasing some sort of spiritual thing more so than uh, than any of the other members. Of course, but you know, this is the problem. Uh, we don't know George, and where I have landed is, you know, think about Paul McCartney. How many frickin' Paul McCartneys do we have? Does anyone know? How many Michael Jacksons did we have? Does anyone know? Um, I just, I can't, I can't go down that road because I have to ask the same question. Clearly, these guys were put on the world stage to do what they did, and not only that, they were the biggest foundational brick that went into that wall. The Beatles changed the entire world. Apple Records changed the entire world in the same way that Apple computer did some decades later. And I will maintain until I can figure out how to demonstrate it. There is some weird, bizarre connection between Apple computer and Apple, the Beatles corporation. But my point is, is we can't take any of this at face value. Um, yeah, I'd love to love George Harrison. Um, but let's face it, he was on the world stage to do a thing and he did it. And the truth is, is we don't even know if there were six George Harrisons. We have no way to know these things. No, I'd say minimally, we can say that the Beatles were pushed out there to push, uh, just push an agenda. But even though we don't have a document proving any of this, there's so much other evidence, such even even with the whole Paul is dead thing, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that definitely points to a lot more was going on than is uh, readily able to be known. Well, it kind of, you know, the whole Beatles thing kind of shows how gullible 
a society we are as a whole, the average person probably has never really considered or thought about this set of facts about the Beatles. Most of the music that we would appreciate from the Beatles in the older generation, if you're in your 30s or up to your 50s or wherever you are, if you like Beatles music, most of what you remember as great Beatles music was written after they no longer toured. They quit touring in 66. As a matter of fact, the music that they wrote during this period, Sgt. Pepper's, all these other iconic albums, the White Album. Um, is that right? Is the White Album in there? I don't know if I've yes. got that in the right time. Yeah. Okay. So what we're looking at is music that could not even be played live by a four-piece band. As a matter of fact, it was not until um, Beatlemania and these other bands in the modern era finally got synthesizers and they could play multiple parts at once that any of this music could be played live. In other words... The majority of the music that we love from the Beatles is a complete studio construct. And there is a reason why they called Martin, what's his name, George Martin, George Martin. the fifth, yeah, the fifth Beatle. Um, you know, let me ask you a question. Was it Paul McCartney or was it John Lennon or maybe it was Ringo Starr that was writing the orchestrated parts of those songs, the horn section? Who was writing that stuff? George Martin is said to have been... There it is. The massive contributor to the... Um... And, and turning uh, more so Paul McCartney, it said, than any of them, but all of them in general, turning them on to this orchestration. And, of course, we know that the Paul we have at this point is not the Paul we started with. Simple, simple photo forensics of teeth and faces and the scars that are left on the new guy that comes along. I mean, we know it's not the same guy. Um, my point would be this. These are products of a studio that are designed to do a thing. And you've got to realize you're looking at people that are about to pioneer techniques like backmasking, um, things like this. And you may know more about this than I do, Jason. We can talk about it if you like, or if there's a better place to add it in. Um, they're putting all these audio techniques into these albums that have an effect on people. Um, and there's really no getting away from it. Well, this is the next step uh, to tie up what's the end of the 1950s and early 60s in the beatnik movement. Um, you have the coming about of the hippie movement in the around 65, 66 that, that sees the end of the beatnik era by the mid-60s. It's pretty much gone. The counterculture of the 1960s is completely an integrated part of the whole music scene. And the most unusual part of this music scene seems to come from a little-known area of Los Angeles known as Laurel Canyon. And this is what we can get into in the second hour. Numerous rock stars seemed to congregate there out of nowhere from all over, and for no particular reason, they were just going here, and a large amount of them seemed to be centered around Frank Zappa and his home known as The Cabin. And this is where you see this next generation of music taking uh, the reins from the 50s and then pushing it to a whole other level, and then the studio techniques that start coming in with all this, it, it's all, this is where the ball really starts to, to spin because technology has gotten a little better in what people can do, and they're always, they all want to push the envelope, and, and the Beatles were one of the forefronts behind that. So when we get into the second hour, we can totally get into how the 60s is what changed everything. You know, Frank Zappa could probably run a whole show. I just saw a, a documentary-style piece on him that was all about him, and he is an odd duck. Um, at the time, it was being filmed before his supposed death of colorectal cancer, and I maintain to this day nobody famous or important will ever die of cancer in this world. Um, he was going to places like Prague 
to sign contracts to let his music go in and influence culture. And they're stating it openly, but they're treating him like royalty, like he is one of the greats of rock and roll. And I will ask everyone listening, name a Frank Zappa song that's famous. Go ahead. I'm sure Jason can do it. There might be a couple <laughs> more of you out there. But my point is, is Frank Zappa isn't a great anything if you want to look at the music that really shaped us. The truth is he was the engineer behind it all. But what always strikes me about Laurel Canyon, it's like they, they put these people here in this place called Laurel Canyon, and they were already sitting on their laurels before they had done the deed in a place named Laurel Canyon. It's almost like they knew the outcome of it. But anyhow, Jason, this brings us to the top of the hour. And um, before I ask you if you want to add anything when we go to the break, um, in the second hour, we're going to actually cover, uh, to some degree, how many corporations own how many of the media, music, and all these other things that that affect our lives? And you're going to be stunned. And I'll do a bit. I'll I'll tip the you know peel the curtain back a little bit. Um, I'm going to start the timeline when there's roughly five corporations um, controlling it all, and I'm going to roll it down to two. And I'm even going to list out some of the things they own. Uh, it's a very interesting thing for people to consider because this is in essence what allows them to do the full spectrum coverage. Anyhow. Jason, is there anything you want to cover before we go to break? Well, hour two is going to be incredible because if you're not familiar with this information about just how contrived, and this breaks my heart, honestly and sincerely, because this is the music I love and grew up loving. It's so contrived. It's 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 a product of the military industrial complex. Once you look at this information and this isn't conspiracy theory, this is documented who these people were. Uh, well, more to the point, who their families were, where they came right. from, and how this happened. It's its ridiculous. It was completely and utterly made up to do what they did. To, to basically declare war on the young generation of the 60s. And as you said, Jason, this is not arguable. If people want to argue about this and treat Jim Morrison as an example, like he's some kind of god, what you are doing is taking an operative who was put in place by dark forces to attack a culture, which he did successfully, and then he'll exit with a fake death. Um, go look at Jim Morrison's death. No one can seem to figure out if he OD'd or not. That's kind of a funny thing. It's usually pretty evident when somebody ODs. But my point is this. We worship all these people and we want to defend them because we've grown up loving their music. But the truth is, is if you look at why it was put there and what it did to all of us in one way, shape, or form, um, Maybe we should reconsider whether these people deserve to be our heroes, our kings, our princes, our heroes, our role models, because, you know, I grew up loving music. I was even a stagehand for most of the 90s because I loved music, um, knew everything about music that I was interested in up to a certain point. The truth is, is I can't even listen to The Doors anymore. If a Doors song comes on, it kind of turns my stomach um, because I know it for what it is. But anyhow, anything more to add, Jason? Now you're going to see some serious stuff when we get into the yeah. second hour. It's, and, and it's, it's I, crazy. <laughs> if you're just a person who wants to live in bliss and worship your heroes, you might not want to tune in and listen to the second hour because we're not pulling punches here. And the truth is, is we have a soundtrack to our lives. There's no separating that from our lives. But you can understand what was done. You can become a aware person, and you can begin to learn to assess all this for what it actually is. But anyhow, that brings us to the, the top of the first hour. The second hour will be posted on crow 
www.ghostbusters.com for members. Um, I would add, I have a new website coming along slowly but surely. I think it will launch in March finally. Um, it'll have modern everything to include a forum so that we can actually talk back and forth. The forum on my site right now sucks to be blunt about it. But there it is. Cheers. Cheers.